Welcome to Abergavenny Baptist Church. Well, the Bible reading uh, today is from Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slaves or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So we continue in our series entitled Tough Topics, where we're looking at how we interpret the Bible in order to make ethical decisions. And today we're looking at the issue of slavery. Now, slavery isn't a controversial issue today. That doesn't mean there is no slavery today. There is still modern slavery today in all its, all its forms from human trafficking, trafficking to child labor to debt bondage to slave labor. Various forms of slavery still present today, even in this country. But it's illegal. And it's frowned upon. All countries that are part of the United Nations have laws to make slavery illegal and will at least within the West, it is overwhelming majority of people frown upon and condemn slavery. It's unanimously seen as wrong. However, this wasn't always the case. Not in Britain and not in the United States. Back in the the 1700s and the 1800s, there were Christians in this country, many Christians, who supported slavery on biblical grounds. You see, most slave owners were Christians. And they believed it was their God-given right to own slaves because God had ordained slavery as a plain, literal reading of the Bible makes clear. In fact, they claimed the Bible from cover to cover endorsed slavery. They pointed out that the law of Moses did not forbid slavery, but actually legislated for slavery. Leviticus 25 and verses 44 to 46 states, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as an inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. And so within this passage, it says you may buy slaves. They can become your property, your possessions. And you can even pass them on to your children as an inheritance forever. 
And so Christians, uh, like the, the, the famous, well-known, evangelical, reformed theologian Charles Hodge, writing in the 1800s, says the fact that the Mosaic institutions recognize the lawfulness of slavery is a point too plain, referring to a plain literal reading, a point too plain to need proof, and is almost universally admitted. They also loved the the book of Philemon. You'll remember the the book of Philemon. Uh, There's a slave, Onesimus, who has run away. And then Paul sends Onesimus back to his master, back to Philemon, back into slavery. With this letter that says in verse 12, I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent because it's his property. So that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary because the reason he was separated from you for uh, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back forever. And so we have a, a pro-slavery article in written in 1823 that says all the in the world cannot get rid of this decisive example. Again, appealing to a plain literal reading of the text rather than some sophisticated interpretation. Christianity robs no man of his rights, and Onesimus was the property of his master under the laws of his country, which must be obeyed, if not contrary to the laws of God. Slaves should not be taken or detained from their master without their master's consent. And of course, they loved all the passages in the New Testament that said slaves must obey their master. We looked at uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. There you go. It's clear, they would say. A plain, literal reading of the Bible makes it clear that God doesn't forbid having slavery, doesn't say free your slaves. He actually says, Slaves, obey your masters. And so Christians, evangelical Christians, steeped in Reformed theology with with an uttermost respect for the authority of the Bible, came to the conclusion that a literal plain meaning of the Bible endorses slavery. And so their argument for slavery emphasized the authority of the Bible and emphasized a plain literal meaning, a plain literal reading of the Bible. As one uh, Presbyterian General Assembly report written in 1845 states, slavery is based upon some of the plainest declarations of the word of God and to oppose that institution is a denial of the authority of Scripture. Another pro-slavery article written in 1820 says that since there can be no prescription against the authority of God, whatever is declared in any part of the Holy Bible to be lawful or illicit must be essentially so in its own nature, however repugnant such declaration may be to current opinions of men during any period of time. So what they're saying, we, we, we mustn't use uh, our 
our value system, our sense, our sensibilities, our culture's values of right and wrong to make ethical decisions. We need to obey the Bible literally. Because if we don't, you know, we must obey it literally, even if it seems repugnant to us, even if it goes against our sensibilities, even if it goes against our culture's values. Because if we don't, we deny the authority of the Bible. As it continues, uh, we either agree that the Bible endorses slavery or else we have to flatly deny the whole of the Bible. That was their argument. Their argument was, you either believe the Bible has authority, and if you do, you're pro-slavery. Or you don't believe the Bible has authority, in which case you can be anti-slavery. If you're anti-slavery, that means you don't believe in the authority of the Bible. So is it a question about whether we believe the Bible has authority or not? No, not at all. You see, they were trying to make it an issue about the authority of the Bible. But it's not about the authority of the Bible. It's about how do we interpret the Bible? You see... Both the those who were pro-slavery and those who were anti-slavery, the, abolish, the abolitionists, they both believed in the authority of the Bible. They both believed in the authority of the Bible. The difference was how they were interpreting the Bible. You see, the, the, the abolitionists, those who wanted to see the end of slavery, were saying slavery is wrong because it goes against the principles of the Bible. It goes against the, the, the spirit of the Bible. Where the pro-slavery guys were saying, no, you've got to read the Bible literally. And if you don't take the Bible literally, that means you are denying the authority of the Bible. Effectively, what they were saying is, if you don't interpret the Bible the way I interpret the Bible, that means you don't believe in the authority of the Bible. But that's not true. It just means I don't agree with the way you're interpreting the Bible. So the real issue is, how do we interpret the Bible when we are making ethical decisions? Do we merely apply the literal words or do we apply the principles, the underlying principles and the intention and the spirit of the Bible? Now, I don't know of any Bible scholar, even the most conservative evangelical, he's thoroughly steeped in the Reformed theology, who would not admit that the pro-slavery guys misinterpreted and misapplied the Bible as supporting slavery. No one today would disagree with that, at least not, that I'm not aware of. They would all say that they, they misapplied the Bible because they applied the letter of the text rather than the spirit. They replied the practice rather than the principle, the literal words rather than the intention. And they also ignored the bigger principles within the Bible. So if we're not going to apply the literal words, but the intention of the Bible, how do we discover the intention of the text? By understanding the cultural context. 
and reading the Bible in light of its cultural context. Now, the slavery during the time of the Bible was very different to the slavery during the 1800s and the the, the 1700s. Very different. The the slavery during the 1700s and 1800s was based purely on race. They went to Africa. They kidnapped a whole lot of black African people, and they forced them into slavery, forced them into doing hard labor, and they treated them very harshly and brutally. Whereas the, the, the slavery during the time of the Bible was diverse. There was a, a real diversity within the slavery during the time of the Bible. You did have the very harsh, brutal form of slavery, which was normally when they would take prisoners of war, force them into hard labor, force them into slavery, force them to work in places like their mines, and they had a very short life expectancy. Equally for gladiators. But on the other hand, you had a lot of people who were voluntarily selling themselves into slavery. It was a way of paying off your debts. You would sell yourself into slavery as a way of paying off your debts. As soon as your debts were paid off, you were set free. Others would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery because they deemed it was a better life for them. Being a hired worker often led to poverty. Very impoverished. You weren't sure if you're going to get a job. You weren't sure if you're going to get money. You weren't sure if you're going to make ends meet. Slavery offered security. Especially if you had a good master, you had a good home, place to sleep, food, clothes, and a job. Others voluntarily sold themselves into slavery in order to advance their career. Because only certain jobs were open to slaves. You see, we think of slavery, we just think of hard force manual work. In the, in the time of the Bible, your teachers, your accountants, your administrators were slaves. And in order to get those jobs and advance in those jobs, people would sell themselves into slavery. In fact, if you were, if you were the head slave of a governor, you were a person of incredible status and power. You had many, many, many people working underneath you. And you had lived a really good life. Slaves earned money. Household slaves. They earned money. They owned possessions. Some slaves even owned slaves. You probably didn't know that. Some slaves had their own slaves. And if they earned enough money they could buy their freedom if they wanted to. So slavery during the time of the Bible is very diverse. Now this is not to say that slavery during the time of the Bible was a good thing. Even if you had the best slave job, (laughs) you were still a slave. You were still seen as the property of your master. You still had no rights. You had no freedom. You had to obey your master. Your master could... Uh, physically abuse you, beat you, uh, he could rape you, he could even execute you simply if he wanted to. So I'm not saying that the slavery during the time of the Bible was good. I'm saying it was radically different and diverse uh, to the slavery of the 1700s and the 1800s. 
You had a massive spectrum from those who, who were slaves in the mines and gladiators who had a short life expectancy. You had the slaves on the farms who had a lifelong time of hard labor. And then you had the household slaves, like Onesimus and like the slaves that Paul's writing to, which generally were treated much better and offered some status and money and so on. However, so the point I'm making is not that that slavery was good, it's just different. And so you can't just take the literal words from one context and just apply it into a different context. Because the context is radically different. We also need to read the Bible against its cultural context. In light of its cultural context. And when we do that, we we discover that the Old Testament makes significant modifications to slavery. Unlike all the cultures around it, they would give generous days off work to their slaves. Their slaves were, were included in worship. Dead slaves were to be released after six years. Provisions were given when a slave was released. There were limits to physical beatings, and there was freedom for a damaged slave. They provided refuge, safety places for runaway slaves. And so when we read the Old Testament in light of its cultural context, we see that the Old Testament isn't trying to start up slavery. It isn't trying to endorse slavery. It's trying to soften a very brutal and a very harsh slavery that was already in existence. It's trying to bring about a more humane slavery. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, Paul writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, of course, this verse just reflects the cultural norm of that day. Slaves were meant to obey their master. But Paul is very subtly subverting slavery. When we read Paul in his cultural context, we see how he's subtly subverting slavery. How is he doing that? Well, firstly, he addresses slaves directly. No other ancient household code would speak to the slaves directly. They would speak to the master. Greeks and Romans, when addressing the household, would never talk to a slave. They would talk to the master. But Paul speaks to the slaves directly. In fact, he speaks to them first, and he speaks to them far more than he does to the masters. And by doing that, he is showing them dignity. Also, he he says, obey your earthly master. He doesn't say obey your master, but obey your earthly master. Why does he say that? He wants them to, he's effectively saying, look, I want you to show respect and obey your master, but I don't want you to think he's your real master. He's not your real master. Your your real master and the person you really belong to is Jesus. And so he's subtly subverting slavery. But but even more so, in verse 9, he says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. What? What? Treat the slaves in the same way? What's he talking about? In the same way to what? I mean, is the master meant to treat the slave just as a slave would treat the master? Does the master have to serve the slave? Paul is, that's right, yes. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying that, that the master needs to show the slave respect and fear just as the respect and fear that he asked the slave to show the master in verse 5. 
You see, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, we looked at this last week, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word reverence in the Greek is the same word that is translated respect in verse 5. And what Paul is saying, I want you to have a mutual respect. I want mutual submitting. I want mutual serving. Just as the slave respects his master, just as the wife respects her husband, just as all Christians respect Jesus, that's how the master needs to respect his slave. Now that is revolutionary in his cultural context. And that also radically undermines and subverts slavery. I mean, how does that work? He continues, though. Do not threaten them. What? How can slavery work if I don't threaten the slave? I mean, in that culture, they would, they would say, you have to threaten the slave because that's all the slave knows is fear and power. A Roman lawyer says, the only way to keep the, the scum, uh, to keep down the scum is by intimidation. And Paul says, if you're a Christian master, don't you dare. Don't you dare threaten them. But how does slavery work then? Well, it doesn't. And he continues, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with them. He's reminding them that they are absolutely equal in the eyes of God. He's reminding them that they both have the same master, and that master shows no favoritism. They are absolutely equal in the eyes of God, and therefore they need to treat their slaves as equals. Revolutionary. Totally undermining slavery. And over here, Paul is appealing to one of the bigger principles in the Bible that we are all one in Jesus. There's a profound equality in Jesus. And you see, when we, when we make ethical decisions, not only should we not apply the literal words, we need to apply the intention of the text, but we also need to make sure that that's in line with the bigger principles in the Bible. The bigger principles, what are the bigger principles? We all created in the image of God. We all have dignity and value before God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat your slaves as you want to be treated. The ultimate ethic. Why do we make such a big deal about the love ethic? Because Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 22 and verses 39 to 40. And Paul did in, in Romans 13 and Galatians 5. And James, the brother of Jesus, did. In James chapter 2 and verse 8. Thirdly, we are all one in Jesus. We are all equal in Jesus. Now this principle is stated a number of times in numerous ways throughout the New Testament. Paul's just stated it in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9. But it's most clearly expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, Galatians 3 and verse 28, and Colossians 3 and verse 12, we will look at Galatians 3 and verse 28, which says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
absolute equality in Jesus. Now, of course, the pro-slavery guy said, well, that's just referring to spiritual equality. It's got nothing to do with social political equality. It's just referring that we're all equally accepted by God on the same terms through faith in Jesus. It's got nothing to do with social political implications. Paul's not saying you need to set your slaves free. So is it just referring to a spiritual equality? Well, what was the main issue in Galatians? The main issue was the Jew-Gentile issue. And you should remember in Galatians chapter 2 that the Jews were refusing to eat with the Gentiles. And so Paul's argument is, if we are all equally accepted by God through faith in Jesus, that means we're brothers and sisters, and that means we eat together. It has social implications. Our spiritual equality leads to a profound social political equality. It has social implications. Now, of course, when, when Paul says there's neither slave nor free, he wasn't commanding all the Christians to set their slaves free. But that did radically subvert the master slave relationship within a Christian household. Likewise, in Philemon, When Paul sends Onesimus back and he says to Philemon in in verse 16, receive him no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. That definitely undermines the master-slave relationship. I mean, he's he's a slave, but but I, I need to treat him like a brother? How does that work? Well, it doesn't. And so, although Paul never commands Christians to set their slaves free, he does lay down principles that will ultimately become fatal to slavery. Lightfoot, a, a, a Bible scholar in the 1800s, writes, indeed throughout the epistle, referring to the epistle of Philemon, the idea of emancipation would seem to be present in his thoughts, though the words never passed his lips. Slavery is never directly attacked as such, but principles are inculcated, which must prove fatal to it. You see, the gospel brings people together, and they experience a profound equality in Jesus. And the result is even the most moderate form of slavery will eventually wither and die. And if church tradition is right, Philemon did release Onesimus. And Onesimus eventually became the leader, the bishop of the church in Ephesus. Why didn't Paul just tell all Christian slave owners to free their slaves? Well, what would have happened if he did? Who would reimburse all those slave owners? They would be out of pocket. They would have no workers. Their business would go bust. What would happen to those slaves? They would be out on the street. They would have no food, no clothes, no money, no job. They would just sell themselves back into slavery. 
So Paul instead, and immediately, he brings about a transformed slavery, a, a, a softening of slavery, a, a far more humane slavery. But in doing so, he lays down the principles that will eventually lead to the downfall of slavery altogether. But we cannot get there if we apply the literal words. If we just apply the literal words, at best we will get a more humane version of slavery. It's only when we apply the intention of the text, it's only when we apply the bigger principles of the Bible that we can reach the conclusion that the Bible says that slavery is wrong and it must stop. You see, if we just take Paul's words at face value, just the literal words in isolation from its cultural context, we will conclude it's oppressive. It supports slavery. But people in the first century in Ephesus, reading those exact same words from their cultural context, concluded that it's progressive. Paul's promoting a profound equality between slaves and masters. And so if we just apply the literal words, we will actually be going against the very intention and purpose of the text. Do you see that? If we apply the literal words, we, we're actually moving in the opposite direction to the, to the intention and the spirit and the principles of the Bible. So rather, we need to apply the underlying principles and the intention of the Bible. And when we do that, then we can reach the conclusion that the Bible says slavery is wrong and must stop. And it goes even beyond that. It reaches to an ultimate ethic which, which, which says, uh, that speaks about poverty release, relief, improved working conditions, maximum wages, fairer pay, a decrease in the gap between the richest and the poorest, harmony and respect, at all levels of society. But we can only get there if we don't apply the literal words, but we apply the intention, the underlying principles, and the spirit of the Bible. We're now going to have our Q&A. A couple of questions I've just written. Don't try and answer all these questions, but these are just... a couple of thoughts to help stimulate you in your discussions that you might want to think about. Did you think that the Bible supported slavery? And was this, a, 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 was this an issue of concern to you? And has your opinion changed since listening to the sermon? What do you think of the pro-slavery argument of Bible authority and a literal reading of the Bible? Is it con a convincing argument? Why, why not? What do you think about the idea of applying the spirit and the intention of the biblical text rather than the, lit the letter, the literal words of the text? Is that helpful or unhelpful? And what do you think about the idea that applying the intention of the biblical text moves even beyond stopping slavery and leads to an ultimate ethic of better working conditions and fairer pay and so on? Okay, just a couple of questions to help stimulate your discussion. It was just a thought that is there anywhere in the Bible where it says slavery is not a good idea or are we just supposed to pick that up from the cultural context and the things that Paul said? Do you know what I mean about uh, where he subverted slavery, which eventually led to, to its, well, I hope abolition. There's, there's only one, one verse, and it, it talks about trading with slaves. 
which, which is the closest we get to that. But no, otherwise, basically, no, there's nothing in the Bible that overtly says slavery is wrong. We only get that by understanding the intention behind the text, looking at the principles and looking at the direction of which the ethic is moving relative to his cultural context. This is Karis' Carat, point, actually, but it was really interesting that um, the, the slavery in the Bible was so different, I think. So I was saying, you know, if I, if I owed Aaron money, and I said, right, Aaron, I'll work for you for two weeks, I'll make your patio... And I'll be your slave for this time. And then at the end of me doing your patio, you can free me. Because I, I wouldn't have any money. And so that made a lot more sense, I think. And, and, but even so, Paul's still saying that we should be equal. Exactly. And so if we are actually equal, you, I wouldn't have the status of a slave anyway. And he's ba- so he's basically saying, I'm no less. And, and I, think that's really, I think that was really good. Because at the end of two weeks, I'd be free again. And if she, in that meantime, still had to treat me as a dear brother, then there isn't any slavery anyway. Oh, exa- no, exactly. So, so that, that's, that's a fundamental difference. So there's nothing wrong with trying to pay off your debts, but you don't have to become a slave and, and, and um, seen as property and abused and, and, and the like and to do so. Yes. I was thinking as well that you can take slavery away, but if we look at the history of the southern United States... Even when slavery was abolished, there was still absolutely terrible inequality, injustice, poverty, people not having any freedom. So actually, it's not the structure of slavery that needs to go. It's those are the far more radical things that we're talking about there. Exactly what I was bringing in with that that, that final eth- that, that ultimate ethic. Uh, and there's a sense in, in in the Bible. I think all the ethical decisions do point to keep on moving to an ultimate ethic that we all know will only be achieved when Jesus returns. <laughs> But it doesn't stop us moving in that direction. And, and if you just take a literal words, it will, it will only ever move you, like I was trying to say, to a point of slavery with better, a more humane version of slavery. We've got to apply that, that, that spirit. And so exactly that. You can free someone. Uh, and what you do is you can free them and say, okay, you're no longer my slave, but I'm going to pay you so badly uh, that you're trapped. You can't leave. And you are a slave in every way except by name. And that's, and that's the kind of the slave labor that we see happening currently. And I believe the Bible speaks, if we understand the underlying principles, speaks powerfully against that form of slavery. And so it moves to that, pushes us to an ultimate ethic. But we only need to get that by understanding the, the, the underlying principles and spirit and intention of the text. Yeah. Anne just made a comment. What is the dictionary definition of slavery? Yeah, very good. I, I, I had it, uh, but I don't have it written down with me at the moment. If you go on, on online, I, I saw it. It was, um, I, I can't think of the whole thing now, but the way it's kind of defined is if there's, you're forced or trapped in, or controlled. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to do it injustice, but there is, a, there's a definition which is basically you are controlling another person. You have power over them in a form of, oh, there we go. You found it there. Brilliant, brilliant. Slavery is a system in which principles of property law are applied to people allowing individuals to own, buy, sell other individuals as juja forms of property. A slave is unable to withdraw unilaterally from such an arrangement and works without remuneration. There are other, uh, other, other definitions that, that are, are slightly broader to, to incorporate 
a slave slave type labor where you are controlling the person even though you are paying and, and, and doing that. Yeah. I think it was the UN's definition it was a bit broader. Yeah. I was only going to say that Paul's approach to slavery is surely very like Jesus' um, approach to the position of women. He treated women with extraordinary respect, um, he, but he didn't um, preach that... Uh, they ought to have the same property rights as men or anything like that. But the respect that he showed women um, leads in the same direction. Exactly. So it's a very, very similar. He restores dignity. And by doing so, he's subverting the cultural norms of his day radically. Well, there was various discussions, but I mean... Seeing that film, Amazing Grace, and, and the, the fight that Wilberforce had to kind of bring the end of slavery as we knew it in this country. And, uh, I mean, that was a tremendous breakthrough. Mm. And I think what came through to my colleague here is that he was a slave when he worked in the steelworks and so on, but he gave of his best. He had remuneration, uh, and then he was a slave to his wife and family. (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, but I think that, uh, you know, slaves unto sin. I mean, that's the powerful thing of uh, becoming a Christian is, you know, that no longer are we slaves to sin. Mm-hmm. And that, Paul, that this is a forward dynamic. Our life in Christ, you know, brings difference. You know, I can't, uh, I, 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 for example, my situation going to North Korea where they're very much slaves to this kind of persecution well, what's happened recently? All that has been taken away now because this big enemy of America suddenly wants to help them and kind of... So something is going to change that. And I think that uh, slavery in many forms, sadly as a doctor, I saw many people slave to drugs, slave to alcohol. I mean, uh, it's uh, the tragedy is that they become bound and other people are benefiting. Top lawyers were people in charge of selling the drugs. I mean, awful things that bind us to death, and, and it's hellish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like you, you mentioned, there, there are so many forms of, of, of slavery, but they're all oppressive. So I, I think um, the issue is that you change this, what Jesus is saying and what the Bible is saying. Uh, it's changing how the oppressed feel. It's also changing how the oppressors think and feel. And so for us, um, it's knowing in our cultural norms how are we oppressing other people at present how are we making them feel less equal less loved by god and what is it that we've got to radically change in our thinking yes yes very true it's, it's always a, a top-down revolution uh which again is yeah it's it's the oppressor he's talking to the oppressor think about it you need to work it out and and stop this so yes, it's definitely a word for us, as in what way are we oppressing others? And and throwing that and looking at the underlying principle, you know, if you do literal words, it's very easy. Well, I don't own any slaves. I'm free. Uh, but if you look at the underlying principle and how it continues to work, you know, we can be implicit in in continuing slavery in the third world by consuming by buying stuff in a certain way and and. And, and so on. So it is a responsibility to us to to continue to be thinking of how we can do this top-down revolution. I was just wondering, it made me think that point, how many people in the world are in slavery because of the clothes I buy or the products that I use? And that is 
really shocking. How many people are... I, I know it sounds weird, but, but, you know, growing my cut flowers and, and shipping them, or, you know, the things that I buy and, like, how many people are in slavery because of me right now? Yes. Uh, one of the last questions I had on my, my PowerPoint, but it, it didn't fit on, so it kind of uh, was, so what is God saying to you, and what do you have to do about it? And so that's something maybe you go away and, and, and reflect on, where we've kind of got there naturally. Again, legal, legalism, very easy. Just don't have slaves. Or, or just treat them well. <laughs> Following the spirit of the text, unlaying principle. It's not easy. We have to wrestle. We have to work it out. But it leads to freedom for you and re- leads to freedom for millions of others who are in bondage. Great. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about Abergavenny Baptist Church, please visit our website at abergavennybaptist.co.uk.